In this lecture, an introduction to culture, we will have an overview of what is involved with a culture. How does it affect human behavior? And how do the concepts of culture apply to the diverse groups that we encounter in our societies today? We'll start off looking at culture in terms of having two primary meanings. One related to this concept of learned patterns of behavior and the other related to the idea that groups or cultures are created through these processes of learning common patterns of behavior. We will first address this idea of culture as learned behavior and look at some of the classic and modern concepts of culture. We'll see that while some of the early concepts were more restricted and ethnocentric, today anthropologists engage a uh, broader concept of culture that sees it as being a human universal. We'll look at what culture does to people, how it affects them. We'll look at how it functions within human societies. We'll look at some of the operations. What does culture do for you? We'll contend that culture does virtually everything and challenge you to think of human behaviors that are not affected by culture. We'll then look at some of the primary characteristics of culture, and in particular, how it is acquired and how it affects human behavior. And then, in summary, we'll look at the idea of cultures as groups and look at the relationships among and distinctions between cultures, subcultures, and societies. In anthropology, we use culture in two primary senses. Once again, we have a definition of culture of shared behavior that is learned and transmitted between generations. In general, we view culture as being adaptive. That is to say, it helps us solve human problems, although it is also recognized that some aspects of cultural behavior may not be particularly adaptive. For instance, cigarette smoking can be seen as a cultural behavior. Is it adaptive? Well, it's not adaptive for your health, but it may nonetheless be adaptive in terms of relating to other people. We'll look at culture in this learned sense as involving norms for behavior. What are the expected patterns of behavior that we anticipate from other members of our group? This culture as learning provides the basis for groups of people who are identified on the basis of the shared patterns of behavior. We'll see that cultural symbols provide a basis for our identity and that one aspect of culture as a group is reflected in the concept of ethnicity, a group of people who share an identity as members of a specific cultural group. Culture as learning has both classic and modern meanings. Our classic meanings are derived first from looking at the linguistic roots. At first glance, the root of culture in the Latin colere, meaning cultivated soil, might seem to be a very different meaning. Similarly, the English cultura was used to refer to a plowed field. Nonetheless, I think that these linguistic roots reflect upon a concept that is cognizant with our modern notions of culture, which is to say that in cultivating soils and in plowing fields, we improve upon nature. And in the case of human beings, culture too is an improvement upon human nature, which is to say through culture, humans can do things that they would not be able to do on the basis of biology alone. 
a historical definition of culture provided by uh, a man named Tyler, who is often considered to be the founder of anthropology, was that culture or civilization was a complex whole that included many different things. He pointed to knowledge and belief and arts and morals, as well as things such as our laws and our customs and other habits that we acquire by virtue of being members of society. Now, in Tyler's definition, he equated culture with civilization, complex societies. Today, anthropologists engage a more universalistic notion of culture, one that sees all human groups as having culture, no matter how simple their technologies may be. In essence, we see culture as being a set of symbolic behaviors that enable human beings to communicate among themselves. And while the idea that there are inferior and superior cultures still persist in the world today, anthropologists reject this notion that one culture can be placed as above or superior to another. While it may be true that some cultures have more complex technologies, other cultures have more complex kinship systems. Some cultures may have more complex knowledge of the biological aspects of human nature. Um, others, say hunter-gatherers, have a far greater understanding of the physiology of animals than is typical of virtually anybody in our own society. So cultures differ in terms of where they emphasize their knowledge, but there's no universal standard from which to place one culture as superior to another. We also understand culture as being psychosocial content. And what I mean by that is what we identify as our psychological dispositions, our tendencies, our social behaviors. These are all things that are provided by culture. We can think of culture as being related to our brain in much the same way as software is related to our computer. Uh, in the software-hardware analogy, you can have a complex computer with billions of gigabytes of memory. But the computer can't do anything. The computer doesn't run itself. The computer is run with software. You program the computer. You give it direction. You give it information about how to use its capacities. And human beings are much the same way. We have a very complex brain, a large storage capacity in our frontal cortex. And it's culture, the software, that programs these biological potentials of our brain. As we will see, this cultural programming of biology is fundamental to meeting human needs and affecting virtually everything that human beings do. Some of the things that we conventionally recognize as being affected by culture includes our communication system, both language as well as nonverbal communication. Our values as to what's important, as well as our norms regarding What's normal behavior? The beliefs we have about the world and our attitudes towards others are all part of how culture has shaped the way that we respond. Indeed, some of the fundamental ways in which we think and learn are shaped and selected by culture. And how we view ourselves as human beings, our identity, is also a product of our culture. Is everything that human beings do a function of culture? Well, we might say not everything that we do. For instance, we might say that farting is not a function of culture. 
However, what you do when you fart is a function of culture. In some cultures, it's considered to be embarrassing, and you apologize for it or deny that it was you and look for somebody else to blame. In other cultures, it's no big deal. You fart and you get on with it. The same with belching. Is belching biological? Yes. Are you supposed to belch after you eat? Well, it depends. In some cultures, belching is the way of expressing to your host what a wonderful meal that they provided for you. So even where biology is part of our behavior, for instance, our reflexes yanking our hand off of that hot stove, biology gets it off the stove, but culture determines what we say and what we do once we burn our hands. So even where reflexes are involved, culture can play a fundamental role in how we respond to those reflex-generated behaviors. One of the fundamental perspectives within anthropology is that culture meets human needs. And this is a broad theory called functionalism that we will elaborate upon later. Within the context of anthropology, there are, however, two different perspectives on what are the functions of culture in meeting human needs. The anthropologist Malinowski suggested that culture was designed to meet human needs, both our basic needs determined by biology, as well as our derived needs from culture. So Malinowski emphasized the importance of culture in providing us with food, with care, with protection, etc. Malinowski's position has, however, been a minority position within anthropology. Instead, the ideas of the French sociologist Emile Durkheim and the anthropologist Radcliffe Brown, which have emphasized collective needs, have played a more important role in anthropological conceptualizations. From their perspective, culture meets the needs of society. Culture maintains society. Culture keeps the group together and functions to keep the group operating at some optimal level. So from this functionalist point of view of a collective need, the individual is not really relevant here. What's really relevant is how culture enables our groups to function smoothly. And how does it help us function? Well, basically everything that humans need, from the food we need for survival and the shelter and protection, through a classification of the world. What exists out there is a function of our cultural understandings. Culture provides an interpretation of behavior. What does this mean? Is this a friendly gesture? Or should you get pissed off when I do this? Culture tells you whether that means something friendly or something vulgar. Culture gives us the solutions to problems that humans face. Tells us what to do or tells us no problem. Don't worry about it. Leave it alone. Culture does this through socialization, learning the patterns of group behavior and providing a set of norms or ideas about how we're going to organize our society. How do we coordinate our groups and control behavior in order to keep it from disrupting the collectivity. So culture, in essence, provides us with motivations. We may have primary motivations or drives that come from biology, but most of the time we act upon secondary motivations, what culture provides us with. Culture provides us with an evaluation of what's good and bad, what's preferred and what's not uh, desirable. In essence, culture gives us the entire framework through which we view the world, create our beliefs, and understand even physiology and human nature. 
So culture does this through providing a number of global effects upon human nature. We will look at some of the fundamental characteristics of culture in terms of it being an adaptive system, in terms of it being acquired through certain kinds of practices and human tendencies, in terms of it inducing certain kinds of behavioral compulsions, a desire to be a certain way and behave a certain way, and we'll look at culture as being integrated, linking individuals together into common patterns of behavior that enable us to function as a coordinated group. First, culture as an adaptive system. One of the most important aspects of culture as an adaptive system is how it organizes our relationships with the environment. All humans must extract food from the environment, directly or indirectly, and culture provides one of the most important ways that food is made available to us. Why should culture, rather than something innate to human nature, be so important? The answer lies in plasticity, in the ability to change one's behavior in response to the environment, and in particular, in response to changes in the environment. For instance, animals normally adapt a very specific pattern of behavior in getting their food. If their environment radically changes, they may not be able to adapt to those changes and survive. What has been repeatedly shown about human beings is their ability to quickly change behavior to adapt to new circumstances. Animals can do that too, but they depend upon biological adaptation which may take many generations and lead to the death prematurely of most of the members of the species until a particularly advantageous biological adaptation occurs. In the case of humans, we have the possibility of changing our behavior from one day to the next and learning from others and creating more adaptive responses to our environment. Another important aspect of culture as adaptation is that it organizes our relationship with other human beings. That in essence, human life is organized around the concepts of culture. And this is important even in cases where culture is making erroneous assumptions. For instance, this has often been pointed out with respect to religion. Many anthropologists have felt that religion is not a particularly adaptive behavior with respect to the environment, but nonetheless recognize that religion can be very adaptive in terms of relating to other members of your group. Groups that share a religion, a common set of attitudes and beliefs and values and norms and behavior function more effectively than groups that do not share common principles. So culture may be adaptive even if it has erroneous assumptions because it allows us to function as a collective unit. Nonetheless, questions have been raised about when does culture become maladaptive? Is it possible for cultural behaviors to uh, lead to a decline in human survival? Clearly that's the case. And this raises questions about the extent to which cultures may function as adaptive units, in which groups that have more adaptive behaviors are not only enabling the survival of their own members, but are also enabling their group to be more effective in competition with others. Nonetheless, because of principles like religion, it becomes difficult to see when certain patterns of behavior 
uh, become maladaptive because even if they may reduce our adaptiveness with respect to the environment, they may nonetheless enable us to function more effectively as a group in comparison to other groups. How is it that we acquire culture? One might say we acquire culture much like a fish in water. Fish get wet because they're in water. Humans get culture because they're in culture. Human beings in general don't have to be taught culture. We learn it because we see other people behaving and talking and thinking in certain ways and we are innately disposed to do what others around us do. Even monkeys apparently have special wirings in their brain that basically set off the same parts of their brain that would happen, for instance, if they reach for a piece of food when they see another monkey reaching for a piece of food. So humans are much more wired into wanting to learn what it is being done by the people that live in the world about us. And this learning happens at two different levels. We distinguish between socialization and enculturation. Socialization involves universal principles of human learning. Regardless of what culture you grow up in, you will learn a language. You will learn different roles for different situations and different people. You will learn about social hierarchies. You will develop a variety of understandings of human nature, regardless of the culture. Enculturation is a distinction that refers to the culturally specific aspects of learning these human capacities. For instance, all normal humans have the capacity to learn language. The specific language we learn depends on the culture that we grow up in, as do the specific beliefs and behaviors and rationalizations that are part of our cultural group. So we are simultaneously socialized and enculturated the differences being the particular patterns that humans acquire within specific groups. Most of what we acquire, either in terms of socialization or enculturation, occurs through unconscious processes. For instance, you don't need to teach a child to talk. Indeed, parents normally waste their time trying to teach their children to talk during the first six or eight months of life and then give up. The kid's not learning anything. Why? Well, their brain's not prepared to learn language. But beginning about one year, and, and certainly by the time they're two, children begin to learn to speak, and they learn from what's being spoken around them. Later, when we look at language, we'll look at how powerful our language acquisition device is, as some people refer to it. This innate capacity that we have to be programmed by the language are languages that are around us and to quickly acquire these behaviors in ways that reflect a predisposed brain. If you reflect on how easy it is for a young child to be able to speak by two, compared, say, with your effort to learn to speak a foreign language as an adult, you'll appreciate the propensity that the young infant has to acquire this information merely by being immersed in the language environment. One of the things that culture does is that it inculcates, induces a variety of behavioral compulsions. These behavioral compulsions are often discussed in terms of norms. The standards or expectations for behavior that people have within a given culture. 
within culture, we not only have a set of ideal norms, the formal rules or preferences of a society. For instance, stop when you come to red lights. You know, don't drive if you've been drinking. As well as a variety of real or behavioral norms. The actual things that people do, like sliding through red lights and driving with a blood alcohol level that's far beyond the legal limit. So cultures both give us a set of norms to follow, but at the same time create a variety of circumstances that might lead us to violate those norms. But in general, culture induces some very powerful compulsions to behave in certain ways. And these compulsions are a kind of force to conformity. We have a variety of ideas about what's the right way to behave. And as a consequence of those ideas, we feel constrained in our behavior. For instance, as hot as it is outside, nobody showed up here in a bathing suit. It might have seemed to make more sense at one level to walk across campus with the least clothing on that you can, but we know what's the normative expectations of a classroom. You don't show up to class in a bathing suit. Cultural compulsions go far beyond these simple kinds of uh, tendencies towards conformity. Social psychologists have discovered that human beings face very powerful forces towards conformity. For instance, in the classic experiments done by a social psychologist named uh, Stanley Milgram, he created an, a laboratory situation in which people were being recruited as subjects to participate in a learning study. And the subjects in the experiment were given the role of being the teachers. And their job was to shock people who gave wrong answers on a matched list of items. So people, for instance, when they heard red, were supposed to say barn. When they heard green, they were supposed to say tree. If they got it wrong, they were shocked by this subject. Well, it turns out that the only subject in the study was the teacher. The person that was presumably being shocked was a confederate. And the real study was designed to determine how far will people go in shocking somebody else. And the rules of the game, as it were, was a dial that you moved up to a higher level of shock each time the person got the answer wrong. And at the extreme part of the dial, it was labeled, you know, you know, very painful, you know, potentially dangerous, you know, and things like this. And it turns out that people in these experiments would continue to give the shocks at these very high levels the majority of the time. They weren't under any more compulsion than just being a participant in the experiment. There was the guy there in the white laboratory coat saying, you know, I'll accept responsibility for this. You just do your job. You know, if they get it wrong, give them a shock. And sometimes the people would say, well, what if they don't answer? Well, consider no response to be an error. Give them a shock and go to the next level. You know, they're not responding anymore. What should I do? Is there something you don't understand about this experiment? They get it wrong, you shock them. Okay, and people would continue. So the vast majority of the people in these experiments would give what they thought were dangerous shocks to other people with no more compulsion than someone in a laboratory coach saying, do you understand what you're supposed to do here? So the idea here is that we as human beings are very inclined to conform to what's expected of us. 
And as a consequence, we may do things that may, from a rational point of view, seem to be inappropriate or unacceptable. Of course, any of you now in the Milgram experiment probably wouldn't do it, knowing that it's an experiment. But people doing this back in the late 40s and early 50s often found themselves compelled for no other reason than that they were in the experiment, and this was their role. Not only does culture give us patterns of behavior about what it is that we're supposed to do, in a very interesting way, culture also tells us what we're not supposed to do. Much of this is studied from the perspective of deviance and labeling theory, which looks at how individuals end up becoming labeled deviants in a society because they don't conform to the norms that are part of the expectations of the group. But there's other aspects to deviance which reflect that it's not only a violation of cultural rules, but in some very important ways, deviance is a kind of cultural rule. In a very real sense, culture defines how to become deviant. So for instance, if you're at a party and you get really drunk, well, you might think about putting the lampshade on your head. Lots of people have done it, right? But you're not likely to go outside and pick up mud and cake mud on your head and come back in. If you're going to show yourself really drunk, you do it in a culturally acceptable way. So deviance is also part of the cultural system. And this is particularly clear in the case of what are called culture-bound syndromes, illnesses that are found only in some cultures and not in others. So for instance, uh, illnesses like susto, magical fright, are found in a specific range of cultures. And people believe that they have been frightened in some ways and it's led to a whole set of illness symptoms. Or in other cultures, people believe that uh, witches are out to get them. Uh, in our society, if you become paranoid, you know, you normally don't say that witches are out to get you. You say it's the CIA or the FBI, which is to say your paranoid delusions are shaped by a set of cultural expectations regarding who you need to worry about. So culture not only gives us compulsions to behave in certain ways, but in a certain way, it sort of sets the parameters for what's acceptable deviance. And in this sense, culture becomes a part of not only what's the regular rules of society, but also the alternative rules. Another important aspect of culture is that it's integrative. And what we mean by culture as being integrative is that it provides the patterns, not only for the group as a whole, the interrelationship among institutions, but also provides the means by which the individual comes into conformance with the broader expectations of the society. We'll look at both of these ideas. In the context of cultural systems, what anthropologists have discovered is that cultures are not a hodgepodge of different kinds of institutions. For instance, we know all societies have subsistence patterns through which they get their food. Uh, we know that all societies have, um, for instance, economic systems that distribute resources. All societies have political systems. But you're not going to find, for instance, a hunter-gatherer society with a market economy and a chiefdom political structure. Those pieces just don't fit together in a culture. Cultures have a set of interrelationships that allow, for instance, the subsistence pattern and the economic system and the family system and the kinship system, 
and the political system to all fit together in a kind of configuration or a dynamic. Indeed, one of the early models that anthropologists used to talk about culture was an organic analogy. A culture is like an organism. It's got a mouth, it's got you know, a digestive tract, it's got an anus for elimination, it's got appendages to move around, and all these pieces work together. You, know, you can't put butterfly wings on a toad and expect it to fly. Those pieces don't work together that way. So the idea here is that cultures have these systems that are somehow integrated around a set of underlying principles or dynamics. And one of the dominant perspectives in anthropology has been that this dynamic is driven by the material conditions, driven by the nature of the relationship of the culture to the physical environment. Of course, these models of culture as an organic system uh, are models, they're not reality. Uh, what anthropologists have recognized uh, almost since the inception of these models is that cultures change and that cultures have conflicts within them. Sometimes societies undergo revolutions or one segment of the society rebels against the government. How can we explain these kinds of dynamics with an organic analogy or an organic metaphor? In essence, we can't. So we have to keep in mind the idea of culture as a system, culture as an organism, is a model for thinking about the way cultural institutions interrelate but it's not the reality of cultures per se. Another important aspect of the integrative influences of culture have to do with how the individual fits within the culture. And there are a variety of approaches that anthropologists have taken to try to understand what's the relationship between individual personality and the cultural system. One of the earlier views, sometimes referred to as culture and personality, or personality as culture, saw the individual's personality and the culture as being very close to the same thing. However, there have been a variety of criticisms of this model, beginning with the recognition that most cultures don't have a single kind of personality. Cultures are characterized by intracultural or within cultural variation, which is to say that Cultural patterns also produce difference. For instance, the most simple of these would be male-female differences. In no culture are males and females expected to behave exactly the same. Every culture has different expectations, different ideals regarding how a woman should behave and how a man should behave. Cultures have differences in terms of how young people and old people should behave. So while we have to recognize that culture is part of the shaping of personality, we need to have more complex models that recognize internal differences. Uh, one of the things that anthropologists emphasize as important is avoiding this notion of a stereotype, the idea that you know, people in a given culture uh, have these set of characteristics. Some may, some may not. Those who don't, maybe they're deviants. Or maybe there's different sets of standards for the rich and the poor, or for big people and little people. So anthropologists still emphasize the importance of using culture to characterize human behavior, 
and recognizing that there are powerful compulsions within a given culture to get people to act in certain common ways. But we also recognize that that's not the whole story. That in addition to these common tendencies that we'll later discuss as modal personalities, for instance, there are also distinct differences that have to be recognized as part of a more complex model of understanding the relationship between the individual and the culture. While anthropologists have often debated just how it is that we define the specifics of a culture, by and large, the idea that we can identify a cultural system as having some significant common components across cultures is also recognized. The idea of culture as a system has also been presented as a pyramid of culture. A pyramid because these models have often emphasized that we begin at the infrastructure, the material conditions of life, and look at things such as people's artifacts, particularly their technologies. Later in the course, we'll discuss how these technologies, and in particular, the subsistence patterns, can be understood as providing the fuel or energy for our culture, the resources that it uses to organize the society. So in addition to a material level, all cultures have a social level, an organizational structure, a family, and the broader life of the society, which creates a particular dynamics of behavior. And all cultures have beliefs, a mental level of culture, where we learn certain ideas, certain expectations for human behavior. Now, some people might see the definition of culture as being arbitrary pointing to the many different ways in which anthropologists have emphasized important aspects of culture. I would, however, suggest that these three levels of culture are not arbitrary, but rather they are transcendent aspects of human nature. Humans everywhere have material conditions they must adapt to. Humans live in social groups, and these are realities that we must adapt to. And we are humans because we have beliefs, a mental level of culture, a superstructure. So while this model, initially proposed almost 60 years ago, hasn't been emphasized in all anthropological approaches to culture, I think it's an important framework because it emphasizes what are true about human cultures everywhere, the material, the social, and the mental. But there are many questions about these classic approaches to defining culture. Sure, culture is shared, learned behavior transmitted between generations. But how widely does it have to be shared? Does everybody in the culture have to have the behavior? Well, we'd say no. Some aspects of cultural behavior are specialized. In every society, men and women are taught different things. There's men's culture and women's culture. And in complex societies, you know, the elite learn different things than the peasants. And, you know, warriors learn different things than merchants. So we have to recognize that culture, while shared, is not necessarily shared by everybody in the group. Classically, culture was defined as intergenerational transmission. Culture was defined as what was passed on from one generation to the next. Yet, many people today question that and say, well, can we have a youth culture that's transmitted among youth? Does that make sense? And many people would say, oh, okay, yes, yeah, so we can have 
interpersonal transmission of culture rather than just intergenerational. Is culture always adaptive? And if it's not, is it still culture? And I think the answer to that would be yes. There are aspects of culture that may not be adaptive. We may have survivals, patterns of behavior that may have been adaptive 100 years ago or 500 years ago or even thousands of years ago that may have persisted until the modern era even though they are no longer adaptive. And so cultures may have patterns of behavior that can actually contribute to mortality in the group. And those patterns may persist if they don't kill off the entire group. Given our classic concept of culture, where does culture change come in? Why do cultures change and how do they change? This is one of the questions that anthropologists have addressed and increasingly in the modern world where globalization has become a major force in producing interactions between different cultural groups. Two major concepts are used to discuss change within cultural systems. Acculturation is a very broad concept, the notion that cultures change through contact, that there are inevitable changes that result when one group is in interaction with another. For instance, if we talk about European-American culture, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture. We don't normally think about Mexican culture as having an effect upon it. Most of the effects that we know in our society are ways in which the American culture has impacted either the Mexican populations or Mexican immigrants that come to the U.S. Nonetheless, U.S. culture has been affected by Mexican culture. Uh, the ranching system is one of the global impacts that Mexican culture has had. I don't think there's anybody in the U.S. that doesn't know what a taco is. Okay? In spite of the fact that Mexican culture has had limited impact upon the broader American society, there has still been an acculturation process. Of course, much of the acculturation processes in the interaction between Mexico and the United States has been one that has involved an assimilation across generations of Mexican populations that were incorporated into the U.S. or that immigrated to the U.S. The idea of the law of cultural dominance is reflected in this idea of assimilation, where less powerful cultures are by virtue of their powerless position forced to undergo changes in the direction of the more powerful culture. So in essence, assimilation deals with some kind of cultural loss because of contact and the systemic changes in a culture that occur because of its influences from a broader society or a more powerful cultural group. So acculturation is inevitable in intercultural contact. Assimilation may or may not be. It depends on the dynamics and the interactions between the two. These ideas of acculturation and assimilation are important for understanding our second definition of culture, that based on the notion of groups as cultural groups. Society, cultures, and subcultures are analytically distinct notions, but very slippery when we start to look at them in terms of actual groups of humans interacting with one another. We can say that a culture is a group that shares a pattern of behavior. And a subculture can be a portion of a group that is differentiated on the basis of certain features or characteristics. So for instance, 
we could say an Irish-American subculture reflects broad principles of American culture, but specific features that come from the Irish cultural background. We can say African-Americans are a cultural group whose culture is in certain respects reflective of the broader American culture, European-American culture, but at the same time has a number of distinctive features, some of which were derived from Africa, others which were derived from the colonial experience, slavery, and other influences that the dominant society had upon a subordinated group. There can be a variety of sources of subcultures. A subculture may be an external group, for instance, Mexicans who get incorporated into American culture, or a subculture may be an indigenous group that gets separated out because of internal processes. So, for instance, there are often countercultural groups, things such as hippies and punks, which are people that have derived from the broader American culture but have distinguished themselves by either rejecting certain principles or adopting others. The distinction between a culture and a subculture is not always clear-cut. For instance, if you have a student in your class who grew up on the Navajo reservation and her parents are Navajo, is she a member of a different culture or is she a member of a subculture? Well, if she made it through the American education system and got admitted to ASU, she knows a lot about American culture. She is likely best considered to be a member of a subculture, a Navajo American. But what about her grandmother, who doesn't speak English, who still tends sheep as a basic pattern of work and weaves rugs? Is she a member of a separate culture or a subculture? Well, in her case, it might make more sense to talk about her being a member of a Navajo culture, which we know has acculturated and adopted many Spanish patterns of behavior, including working the sheep herds and making rugs and things like this, but nonetheless a separate culture apart from both the Spanish influences and the broader American society. So what is a society? Well, sociologists sometimes define a society as a geopolitical entity, a political structure that occupies a certain geographical area. Or they might use a looser definition of society as a group of people that has some regular patterns of interaction and which are interdependent upon one another for survival. In our world today, societies, cultures, and subcultures are in constant interaction, in part because we live in what are known as culturally pluralistic societies, societies that have a number of different cultures living within them. Since the inception of American society, there has been cultural pluralism. In the early periods, there were not only English settlers and Native Americans and African slaves, but French settlements and German settlements, some of which persist till today, the French in South Louisiana, the Germans in Pennsylvania. So we're a society that always has had different cultural groups within it. And in those cultural groups, there have been a constant process of splintering and assimilation and splintering and segregation. For instance, groups like the Amish are a German cultural group that split off from other Germans and maintained a distinct cultural entity within the broader American society. 
These ideas of culture, society, and subculture interactions sometimes are ambiguous, particularly in culturally pluralistic societies. But that ambiguity hasn't kept people from using these ideas to understand something about these culturally pluralistic societies in which we live. In the context of business and management, the cultural concept has become appropriated to talk about significant differences within not only their own spheres of concern, but in other societies as well. For instance, most of us, when we think about culture as a group, are thinking about a national culture, American culture, French culture, uh, Turkish culture, Russian culture, etc. But when we look at these national groups, most people within those groups make important regional distinctions. In the United States, for hundreds of years, we've talked about northern versus southern culture, and southern hospitality as a reflection of southern culture. Today, we talk about east coast versus west coast culture. You know, people on the west coast are supposed to be more laid back and easygoing, and people on the west coast think the people on the east coast are sort of uptight you know, and too rigid. We recognize some differences within the regions of the United States. And of course, this idea of regional cultures, of course, is specialized with ethnic cultures. Some manufacturers market to specific segments, you know, the Mexican-American market, and maybe within the, the Hispanic market, distinguish the Mexican-American market from the Cuban-American market. For instance, Hallmark Cards does this. Different greeting cards for different segments of the Hispanic market. Within business, the idea of culture was initially exploited in the context of international business. What is different about doing business in Japan versus the US, or doing business in Mexico versus doing business in Russia? The idea of business culture became a subculture of national culture, reflective of the national culture, but having specific patterns that distinguish it from other areas of activity. This idea of business culture was further differentiated in the US in terms of corporate cultures. Indeed, there's books out called Corporate Cultures, and it talks about the major corporate culture segments in the United States. For instance, contrasting the uh, finance industry with the entertainment industry. Both have corporate cultures that are broadly similar within them and very distinct between them. Within the context of business, the idea of cultures has been further exploited as a subculture concept. For instance, talking about the subcultures of managers versus the subcultures of uh, professionals. Often in the workplace, a manager, someone with a BA or an MA, is supposed to be the boss of someone who's got a PhD and engaged in research. And a lot of problems occur in businesses when someone with an MBA who thinks that he's supposed to know everything and be in control of everything is now trying to micromanage a professional who says, you don't have the least idea what I'm doing here. You're keeping me from getting my job done. And every time I have to report to you, I'm losing good work time. So if you want the job done, get out of here. Stay away. Leave me alone. So The Clash of Cultures was the name of a book uh, that looked at this professional managerial uh, conflict in the workplace. And within workplaces, there are often well-recognized microcultures. 
for instance, most corporations that depend upon a significant um, technology component have a bunch of people who are known as the computer geeks. And not only do they know something different, but they tend to behave different, they tend to dress different, they talk different, they have their own particular subculture. And anthropologists sometimes study these. For instance, one anthropologist named Steve Barnett studied the quants. And the quants are people that have advanced mathematical skills and they know something about economics. And these are the people that are programming the computers to sell billions of dollars worth of stock if certain market conditions emerge. How do they make their decisions? How does some notion about a particular economic phenomena get translated into an algorithm? What kind of reasoning processes do they use to do this? And what kinds of reasoning process produce mistakes and errors that might cost a company a billion dollars in one day? So within our society today, we often think of cultures in terms of ethnic groups, but they can be applied to virtually any aspect of human behavior. What distinguishes one group of people from another is in essence a question of cultures or subcultures. So to summarize, culture is multidimensional. And in this course, we will look at the many different ways in which culture has been understood by anthropologists. We'll look at the functions of culture, some of the fundamental things that it does from human beings. We'll look at culture as a determinant of human behavior, as something that powerfully constrains what we do and sometimes provides very important compulsions. And we'll look at the idea of culture and cross-cultural adaptation as one of the tools that the cultural concept provides us. By understanding human differences in terms of culture, we have the potential to adapt to other human groups. So how do we bridge this culture gap? What we will look at next is a video that look at how businesses deal with cultural differences, how they adapt to different cultural environments. And I invite you to assess yourself, to look at what is your cultural background? What is the influences that have produced you as a unique individual? And if you think that you're just a normal person, that there's nothing particularly cultural about you, you've got a long way to go.